Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. We met this week's guest, Dan Dos Santos, at DragonCon when he came by our booth and my wife, Emily, absolutely knew who Dan Dos Santos was, but no way could this person be Dan as he was too young to have done all that Dan Dos Santos had done. In the end, he ended up proving to her that he was indeed Dan Dos Santos. Well known for his colorful oil paintings, most often depicting strong women, Dan's work spans a variety of genres, including novels, comics, film, and video games. He has worked for clients such as Disney, Universal Studios, Activision, Boeing Aircraft, Scholastic Books, The Greenwich Workshop, Penguin Books, Random House, Upper Deck, Hasbro, and DC Comics. He has been the recipient of many awards. He is a Rhodes Family Scholarship winner, a five-time Hugo Award nominee for Best Artist, and has received both gold and silver medals from Spectrum, the best in contemporary fantastic art. His illustrations have graced the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list numerous times, and his covers are seen in bookstores in dozens of countries around the world. And he has been an Illustrators of the Future judge since 2019. Welcome, Dan. Oh, hi, John. Thanks for having me. Sure. I'm really happy to have you on the uh, Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. <laughs> You've been such an amazing career, and I know that listeners are going to enjoy hearing about your history as an artist and any advice that you'll be providing in the next hour. So my first question is, how'd you get started in illustration? I mean, you've got a serious career right now, but how did it start before you were a professional? Um, I think like most professional artists, I always kind of wanted to be an artist from the time I was too young to actually know what that entailed. Uh, but I was really fortunate that in high school, my, my actual high school had a, a program for aspiring artists called Careers in Art, where they place you in an internship. And it just so happened to be that there was... Uh, an artist in my town who was the president of the Society of Illustrators. He had done a lot of early edition Stephen King novel covers. His name is Stephen Stroud. And he saw my work and took me in as, uh, as an intern. And I worked in his studio for several years, just kind of gleaning what I could. And he really helped me figure out what it is I wanted to do. He said, you know, all the stuff that you like here, this is illustration. And if you want to do illustration, you should go to school. And this is how I do it. And you should do this. And and I really, I really followed his his advice. Well, good. That's um, obviously it was very, very good advice. <laughs> so, yeah. so then, at what point did you switch then from being an intern to a pro, where you're started making money? Well, one of his key points of advice was, I really do need to go to school for this. Um, I was born in the in the 70s, so this was pre-internet and stuff when I was graduating high school. And so really the only way to get a good art education was to go to, to an art school, which was cost prohibitive. And even though my parents had been very supportive of the idea of me pursuing art in my youth, when it actually came time <laughs> to choose a career, <laughs> that's, that's not high on a parent's list of, of secure. I also was passing up uh, I had a scholarship if I wanted to go to school for engineering, uh, which I had, I was kind of indifferent to, honestly. Uh, so I basically, I coerced them to at least let me apply to the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And I thought, if I get a scholarship there, I'll go there. If I don't get a scholarship, 
I'll go to Glassboro and I'll do engineering and maybe just minor in art. And, uh, and I applied and I did not get a scholarship. <laughs> and I thought, I really don't <laughs> want to do this other thing. I, I want to do art. And this is what I've always wanted to do. So I just ended up, you know, paying for the majority of school myself and taking out exorbitant loans and, and really busted my butt. I, uh, I, I couldn't afford to live in Manhattan to go to school. So I commuted five hours a day to go to school in New York. Uh, which really was too much, but um, probably five wow. and a half years in retrospect. But uh, I did it. I was really serious about it. And because it was coming out of my pocket, I was probably more serious about it than many of the other students. And I ended up graduating top of my class. And then when I graduated, it's kind of this, you know, you get a degree, but you're still not actually an artist. You're not, that doesn't guarantee any jobs. <laughs> so uh, I moved back home and just started hustling, doing any work I could, portraitures, painting people's pets, anything. And uh, and eventually I, I started getting illustration jobs that just sort of snowballed into this career you see now. Wow, that's amazing. So who have been some of your inspirations? Uh, what other artists have been like your inspirations? Oh, well, definitely my mentor was one of my greatest and, and, uh, most influential influences. Um, but as far as artists, other artists go, uh, early on, I really had a love of comic books, which is a love of mine that, I, that I'm sort of rekindling lately. So a lot of comic book artists like Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane were really influential to me in my teens. Uh, and then later on artists like Joe Jusco and Michael Whalen and HR Giger, who are all all illustrators, um, some bordering on fine arts, uh, and all painted traditionally and, and very realistically, particularly like Michael Whalen and Joe Jusco. Uh, Joe Jusco did a yeah. lot of comic stuff. So he was my segue of this kind of traditional American comic book style into painted realism. And I saw that and I thought, that's what I want to paint. <laughs> and Michael was just kind of like, I think he's been many illustrators sort of influenced that he's just been doing sci-fi fantasy for so long and is so exceptional right. that it's hard not to be influenced by him. And so when I went to school, I, I thought, okay, that's, that's what I want to do. So I, I focused on painting, picked up oils and just did that one thing until I, I got really good at it. <laughs> so is, is oil, is that like your favorite medium that you work in? Uh, I think it, that's probably fair to say, um, you know, after doing this for 20 something years, the novelty of any new medium is sort of fun and exciting and makes it feel your favorite, but oils is certainly my, my forte and the most versatile and the one I use the most. Yeah. What for you makes it the, the best? I think it can emulate just about every other medium more so well now digital can emulate pretty much everything, but you know, I can make oils look like gouache. I can make them look like acrylic. I can kind of make them look like digital. Quite often people think my work is digital. Um, but it, it gives me a lot of versatility. And I think nothing else can quite imitate oils the way it, nothing can do what oils can do. They're like in real life, the luminosity that comes off a really beautiful painting and just being able to see through layers of paint, nothing else can imitate that. Yeah. Just as a point, because I know it's come up before in other people I've, I've interviewed as, as artists, do you have any particular favorite uh, oils that you use? Like, um, I know oh, that. Brand? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I was thinking, because I get asked that a lot by students. And uh, 
I think it's, I am so finely tuned to my medium that it's hard to say any one brand that suits my needs. So like, I like the yellow from this brand and the blue from that brand and whatever from that brand. Like uh, I'd say lately, it used to be Rembrandt was primarily most of my colors. They've since gotten a little more expensive and I've started to really enjoy gambling lately, which makes a ton of non-toxic options and they make some wonderful grays that I love. But then there's certain colors that like I use Windsor Newton for their Indian yellow. I still use Rembrandt for their ultramarine blue because just because little things that I like about them. That's interesting. So it's not like this is my brand. It's like I use. I use whatever works. <laughs> you spread the wealth. <laughs> yeah. That's, if, that's interesting. If, if any artist knows looking. If any artist is looking for a good brand to start with, though, I would probably say Gamblin is a wonderful price point and really high quality. Oh, good. Well, yeah. What makes it well? What makes a, a, an oil paint good as compared to others? You know, is it? Well, I think that's when it comes to it's, the recommendations are hard because it really depends on the way you paint. So I know certain artists that love like a brand like Holbein because it's really buttery and slippery, but if you paint really impasto and you want very thick paint, it's going to work against you. Um, so really, it's just about it suiting my needs for the way I paint. So for me, I like things that are very, it has to have, it has to be a little slicker than usual because I like to paint slick and refined and smooth. And I also kind of like my paints a little more transparent than most people because I paint so thin. I let my drawing come through a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so certain colors, I like, I gravitate towards Gamblin's like phthalo green because it's more transparent than say Rembrandt's and stuff. It's not that it's a better quality paint. It just really suits my needs better. Oh, that makes sense. Do all oils, they take the same amount of time to dry or is that a factor as well? Yeah. So different colors dry at different rates. Um, a lot of earth tones and things like iron oxides and umbers dry really quick. So they're not problematic. Uh, but other colors like reds and yellows and whites, they can take like quite literally a week to dry sometimes if you paint really thickly. So I actually have to work that into my whole work process. So sometimes I add dryers or I paint a little thinner or I paint certain areas first so that it's not interfering with something else. Because I always have to make sure every day when I sit down at the easel that there's a dry spot for me to work on. <laughs> so I kind of work around that quite a bit. Wow. So in total, then how long does it take them for you to do a painting? Um, it depends on the painting. I can do, I could do a bad painting pretty quick <laughs> to do, <laughs> to do a good painting. Like what you'd see on a bookstore shelf is usually about a two week turnaround for me, uh, which is even that sometimes is cutting it close, but I'm, I'm getting faster in my years. Um, the job I'm currently working on right now, which is just a series of paintings. I only get about three days of painting. So there's a lot of accommodations and I'm just doing a different style, but something like say the Mercy Thompson books, that's about maybe four days of idea generation, just me coming up with sketches and, and concepts for the client, which is usually the hardest part of painting actually. Uh, and then another couple days to compile reference. So I have to hire a model and find the perfect shots and go scout for backgrounds and things like that and then i stick it all together and then it gives me about maybe seven days of actual paint time to complete it got it and then on on doing that 
do you read the story first or do you're given a synopsis or how do you know what to come up with that's going to make make it accurate it's the hardest part um in the case of something like probably one of the biggest series i mentioned mercy thompson is is probably that and brandon sanderson's books are probably the largest books i work on they advertise so far in advance that there's not actually a manuscript for me to read yet um so just because they're popular books so Typically in that situation, I'll speak to the author. And in the case of Brandon or Patty, they just kind of like, we talk on the phone and they give me a little bedtime story and, and, and we figure out what we're going to do. And, and I get the general idea. And I'm familiar enough with both of their work that even a rough synopsis from them, like an outline is going to help me. Uh, yeah. Any other job, if I do get a manuscript, I try to read the manuscript. Okay, so that's important. So for anybody who's like listening to this, it's important to actually know what's in the book because it's nothing's worse than seeing a cover where it is totally is contrary to what the story is. Yeah. Well, it also, you know, and it's funny, like say the Mercy Thompson series again, I'm very familiar with those books, intimately familiar with them. And the covers are still inaccurate. Uh, quite oftentimes the inaccuracies are not due to ignorance. They're due to just marketing styles that there's things we know we can't do on a cover and things we can do that are going to sell really well. Uh, but also being really intimate with the story gives you motifs that a synopsis isn't going to give you like emotional context. It's going to like, you're going to just have a deeper understanding of the characters. And, and I try to put all those things into my painting, uh, so like in the case of right. Brandon stuff, uh, I'm a fan of Brandon Sanderson. I read his books, whether I'm working on them or not. So I have such a good grasp of the, of the stories and such a love of the characters that when I do paint them, like all these little Easter eggs go into it. And I'm making sure that I'm creating this piece that a fan is going to be able to look at and be like, oh, look at the stitching in that vest. That's when he like made this vest out of this part from this guy's vest and, and little things that will hopefully attract a reader as they go through. Yeah, I mean, that's important. But when you find something that her blonde hair was blowing in the wind, you look at the cover and it's she's oh, yeah, a brunette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I know you're familiar with uh, obviously all of uh, L. Ron Hubbard's old work and a lot of pulp stuff back in the day and men's adventure stuff was wildly inaccurate because they would just take art from anything. They would give give an artist like literally a two-day turnaround for some of these stories. And they're like, yeah, there's a dame and a guy. And it's like, yeah. and whatever. And it just got slopped on there. Now publishers are pretty astute about that stuff. And it doesn't happen quite as bad anymore. But yeah, you do want it to be an accurate reflection. It's never going to be yeah. flawless. But <laughs> Right. It's interesting. To, like... Um, some of our first judges for the Illustrators of the Future contest were um, Ed Cartier and uh, Frank Kelly Fries, and they talk about illustrating Ron Hubbard's uh, work. and And Ron Hubbard actually wrote to Ed Cartier thanking him because he he had illustrated a lot of the old Doc Methuselah art and uh, covers, and he thanked him for being so you know so good and just for really getting what was the stories. And they responded that it was really easy to illustrate. Um, Hubbard's work because it was it, it was so visual in what they're writing, so it was very easy for them to be able to illustrate that, which they appreciate because some writers are not easy to illustrate. Not at all. And, and you know, it's funny. Neil Gaiman is a really popular author, 
And there is almost no visual description in his stories. Despite them being so fantastical, he never stops to say what the character is wearing or sometimes even what their complexion is. And you realize like they they made American Gods into a TV show recently and, and I watched it and I thought, that is nothing like what I pictured this book to be in my head. And then I went back to the book and I realized there was no contradiction. It was just completely left up to the reader. There was like, and so you end up filling in all these blanks, creating your ideal world sort of thing as you yeah. go. But yeah, I appreciate authors who are very visual. Yeah. It just, it's as a reader, it's really easy to, because I like being able to visualize because I have my own idea what, you know, a certain description will create a certain image in my head as compared to you will have a different image, even though it's a description on it, you know, but um, it's still what my idea of that person is or of that scenario or that home or that street or that building. And that's where having like a really good artist that can get in there and kind of being in tune with what the writer's saying to be able to uh, really give something that people go, wow. I get that. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me because that it's hard and it's really important, but that, and that's one of the things that illustrates the feature contest that people, one of the things that's a take home is like, it is important with the illustration is because it together with this story makes it a lot stronger communication. Absolutely. And if you get it it's right, all, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Communication is, is key. It's, it's what separates an illustrator from a fine artist to me is this idea of storytelling that it's, it's for the audience's benefit more than the artist's benefit when you create these works. So telling them something and informing them or swaying their vision as they read that story is really imperative. It is. And your, your art definitely does that. And that's one of the things, even that in the illustrator's workshop that's given here, one of the things on some of the different essays that Mr. Hubbard wrote, he talks about, art is a quality of communication, you know? So, you know, at what point is it, does it violate that? Or, and that's where you run into problems where you have sometimes art will be so out there. It doesn't really communicate people. Are like, what is that? I don't understand it. I mean, I just saw yeah. something just the other day where someone sold, it was nothing. And they sold it as a piece of art. It was actually nothing. It was, it was an empty oh, space. Yeah, and he yeah. sold it. He got like $30,000. It was like, really? Yeah, yeah, it was 18,000 euros or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's it yeah. it nothing. It's not I mean, art, you know. And I, I think you could almost go the opposite way. I think you could almost provide too much information in a piece of art sometimes, too. I think I see mm -hmm. sometimes young artists feel this need to, to be so accurate to the story that they almost spoil the joy a little bit, that they take out a little bit of the mystery or, or they're not, or they're just depicting a scene too literally, as opposed to, you know, the overall flavor of the book. Uh, and that's weirdly, I think the biggest challenge in a cover is that, you know, a book has, you know, 500 pages to tell the story. As an illustrator, you get one image and you're not just trying to tell a scene. You're not just trying to tell a character. You're trying to tell an entire story in one image. And so that really means it's like, it's like after you eat a good meal and like you have this flavor left in your mouth that kind of, it's not one element of the meal. It's just the whole meal as a flavor. I think that's what you try to achieve as, as a book cover artist for the story. And to do that well means finding a balance in there between giving too many answers and not enough answers. 
Yeah, I mean, we don't need a photograph. If you need that, you just take a picture yeah. and, and just piece them together, and there you go. There's your there's your cover. That's not what's being. That's what's not what's needed. Because you also need to create want. You need to make a person see that image that you just painted and go. I got to read that. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a very aloof thing. A good. I'm I'm always intrigued at what makes a good book cover because even even myself. You don't know. You're always kind of shooting in the dark and there'll be something I paint that I think is, this is the best cover I've ever painted. And then it doesn't get a good response. And then something else, I think this is just all right. People gobble it up and you're just like, what are those things? And, and you're trying to appease a mass audience, which is also difficult. There's so many little yeah. facts <laughs> and what really creates want, I guess. Yeah. I mean, how Frazetta did it with all the Edgar Rice Burroughs on, on Tarzan. You know, he just, how he did that was like, it was the art that all of a sudden captured the, the eye of the American reader and then propelled Tarzan into the bestseller status. Yeah. And that's a good example of maybe not being the most accurate images, but images that did very well for the stories and creating, yeah. getting the right vibe, accurate or not, and creating want. Yeah. Exactly. It created the right vibe. And that's, I think that's an important thing too. So anyway, so have you had a, any favorite projects? And if you don't want to answer that because you don't want to diss somebody, that's fine. <laughs> no, no, you know, I, I'm really fortunate in my, like the past, I even five years of my career, I've gotten nothing but dream projects, truly like dream projects. I got to illustrate the name of the wind by Patrick Rothfuss, which it was the 10th anniversary edition, and that was already in like my top three favorite books of all time. So that was a geek out. I yeah. mentioned- By the way, do you know that Patrick Rothfuss was a winner in Writers of the Future? I do know that, yeah. And I yeah, believe and said, yeah. Brandon Sanderson was one of your- was, He was uh, a finalist. He was, he was an honorable yeah. mention, yeah. And Diana Rowland, who's actually one of my other favorite series to have worked on, I believe was one of yeah, yours She was as a well. winner, yeah. Um. But I've gotten to work on some like stuff that I'm just a fan of. So those are always great projects. Sure. Uh, and then Diana Rowland's covers have been some of the most fun, I think, because they're this weird, like, kind of sexy, kind of campy, kind of bizarre. They, every cover, I just push the envelope, and I think there's no way they're letting me put this on a cover. And then every time, Doll lets me do it, and uh, <laughs> it's those yeah, well, that. That cover you did for that for Diana's teenage zombie that one what was that white trash zombie white trash zombie that was an amazing cover when I found out you're the one that did it, I was like wow because I yeah. love that cover it was a great but, story I enjoyed the story it's a great story and that was a, a tricky one because I think somebody else had tried I mean it's essentially a zombie romance right mm -hmm. and uh, and I think somebody else had tried a romance cover and the moment you put a zombie on it it's like it looks gross, right? So you're trying to paint an attractive zombie is essentially the task. Uh, so it was a challenging job. It was fun. Yeah. No, you did great on that one. That was, that was, I said, when I went through your art originally, when we was first reviewing, you know, and just, okay, to learn about Dan Dos Santos and look at all your art and like, wow, there and there and there, just recognizing, I didn't know we've been, that we've had such an already predetermined, relationship just based on everybody that you had been doing covers for that I knew so well already as, as winners of the contest or judges. Yeah. It's funny how much actually our, our stuff has overlapped, not only the authors yeah. that I've worked with, but um, early on, I think, I think it was galaxy press that contacted me 
when you guys were getting ready to reprint all of Hubbard's back stuff, all of his back mm-hmm. catalog, uh, I think you had like 200 covers you needed to to do. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the people you reached out to about that, and it was just too much of a project for me to handle. But uh, I remember early on uh, thinking right. about how am I going to do this? How am I going to do 200 covers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then with your policy of or with your thing of three three weeks per, that's like uh, to get done before um, you get yeah. too old to be able to pick up a paintbrush. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But have you always done book covers or have you done other projects too with your art? Like, cause you're talking about comics and some of the other stuff like on, on movie studios, have you done like landscapes for, for movies and stuff or? Uh, like matte paintings. I've never done any matte paintings. It's funny. That's a little bit of a dying art now in the, in the time of CG. Um, yeah. But I've done a lot of concept art for film, designing the costumes and the looks for characters. Mm. Uh, usually I'm in the pre-production phase of everything. So when, when the film is green lit, but they haven't started production and they need to know, okay, what's Nicholas Cage going to look like in this kind of jacket and stuff like that. Those are the sort of things I'll draw up for them and, and show them like, okay, well, his magic can look like this and he can do this and we can make this kind of clothing. Uh, that's always fun. And, and even though book covers are my bread and butter, it's all those other little things that keep it exciting for me. Like I've done, sure. I've done some comics, I've done some film, I've done literally like designed supermarkets, which like sounds weird, but all those little things are some of my favorite jobs. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask you if you've done stuff like that. I know Bob Eggleton designed one of the theme parks in Las Vegas. So I was just yeah. curious if you've done other type of, like you said, yeah. supermarkets or buildings or complexes or anything like that. Quite a bit. Uh, things you would never see on my website, but I've designed actually like, <laughs> like stores for Boar's Head and Lowe's Foods and stuff like that, that uh, it's always about, they hire lots of artists to do these things. And most of them tend to be architects who have a very Uh like, even though they're creative, an architect isn't giving them a sense of what does it look like when the sunlight comes into the skylight and hits hits your produce section and stuff. And so those are the things I can paint and bring to life for them that really help get them to come back to me, the things they love seeing that they don't normally see. So I get it. That's fantastic. It's a chance to flex different muscles. It's uh, you know, you get bored, even with the dream job, you get bored of it doing the same thing all the time. So. Wow. So, um, do you ever do commit? I mean, you've obviously got lots of jobs coming. Do you ever do commissions? Uh, yeah. I mean, well, everything's a commission, private commissions. I've been doing more and more self-published authors, which, you know, 10 years ago, I would never touch. I would like, if you didn't have a publisher, there was no way I was doing your cover. Uh, but, you know, on printing on demand has changed everything. And now some of quite literally some of the most successful authors in the world are, are self-published and, and just, you know, you know, putting out eBooks on Amazon. So I'm seeing a lot more of that kind of commission come in. And I still do the occasional private commission. If somebody wants a large scale work of like their favorite comic book character or favorite novel character, those are actually some of my favorite things to work on because those things have really loose deadlines and they give me a chance to, rather than rush and paint something in three days or two weeks, I can spend like three months and really like make the best painting I can possibly make. That's never the case for illustration. I never, I never hand in a job and think that's the best I could do. It's always, 
this is due in three hours. I guess that's the best I can do. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever do like uh, private commissions of like some some guy's spouse or their here's their their family or anything like that? Do you ever do those or? Uh, I used but in, to, it, but in a fantastical s- setting or something like that, you know. So they want this is my wife, but I want her her favorite character is this. I want her to be th- that type of a person. Yeah, I have done that before. That's actually a pretty common. It, that happens a lot with commissions, and usually I try to slip it in. Maybe they're not the main character, but their family is in the background, like in a marketplace or something, and it's their daughter, yeah. and it just makes it more special for them. It's a. Uh, sure. One of the great differences of painting a book cover versus a private commission is that your audience, rather than being half a million people, is just a family. And it's like you're trying to make this painting that they love. And so you can kind of lock in on their tastes a little better. And and so those little Easter eggs for them, for something that they're passionate about, it really, it, it changes the piece to me. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about any particular book covers have been your favorite. I know, like I said, I... I I give my favorites, but I'm asking what your favorites. <laughs> I think my favorites, like, I I think that White Trash Zombie is up there, uh, particularly the s- second one, I think, is the White Trash Zombies. Even White Trash Zombies get the blues, and it's a girl mm-hmm. in, a, in a bathroom stall. Uh, it's the only painting I've ever done that my wife likes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my wife is very very uh encouraging she's always like that's a good job but she never actually like that's the one painting she was like do not sell that painting i like that painting um that one's up there for me my moraine for the wheel of time series is up there for me yeah and i'd say my rose red for dc comics which is kind of this woman in a gold armor holding a sword is, is yeah that's awesome experience. thanks so you really like the, the strong the strong female character in your. Yeah. That just seems to be the theme in those three paintings. Doesn't it? (laughs) I don't know if that's why I like them, but it, it seems to be what I'm good at. And so I do get a lot of those commissions. Yeah. Now you've been illustrated as a featured judge since 2019. What made you decide to become a judge? Uh, Well, you guys asked, you asked and I love, I love helping. I love fostering, I think it's probably one of the things we share is, is bolstering this community, you know, that mm-hmm. you guys don't have to put on this contest and give away all this money and help people boost their platform. You do it because you love it. Uh, and I mentioned that internship I lucked into as a teenager, it literally changed the course of my life. And I think if I could pay that forward in any way possible, uh, I like to do that. And students in particular are, are, are something I like helping. So uh, i run a website called Muddy Colors, which is just free art education articles every single day of the week, just truly to help bolster young students. And then contests like this, if if you guys ask, it's 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 truly my honor to help. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. So this is, I mean, this is a contest that was created by Aaron Hubbard in 1983. And because of the success of the Writers Contest, the Illustrators Future Contest was created and I would imagine having gone to school then that you'd be familiar with like Frank Kelly Fries because he was the first coordinating judge. But we had some of the amazingly great, uh, talented artists from the Pulp Fiction areas. We had, like I said, Ed Cartier. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you knew Leo and Diane Dillon. Diane Dillon still lives in uh, New York. 
Oh, we had H.R. Van Gongen. Will Eisner was one of the first judges. Uh, obviously, Frank Vizetta, Jack Kirby, uh, oh. Paul Lair. And then we also had Gary Meyer's been a judge for a long time. He's retired now, but he, um, he did some of our paintings for us too. We also, um, you know, just really worked on creating that contest and just opening it up for the aspiring artist to be able to get that, that opportunity to do it. And these are all people, those are mostly people, half of those guys had illustrated Hubbard's uh, writings from the Pulp Fiction era. So they were already familiar with him as, as a writer and wanted to support it because nobody was doing this. Nobody was providing a competition, an even playing field for aspiring artists and writers. Because everybody, all you ever see when you do your judging is the art in a number. You have no idea who it is. And I, and I think back then in particular, it was probably even more important to have that platform that nowadays you can kind of get your work out there any way you can, Instagram or whatever. But, you know, 20 years ago, there were not gatekeepers, but it was difficult to get published. It was difficult to get your work in front of an art director or a publisher and actually like get it printed. So having this platform for young artists to do that is just invaluable. Yeah. And one thing that happens too is that for every winner, we do media. I said it for radio, TV, or print interviews with them. And invariably every year, one or two of the illustrators will immediately be picked up from one of the press releases and hired to do all type, not just book covers, but they'll be hired to do, you know, um, art for all types of different things just because people see, we put it out there in front of other people to see. And because they're winning or of a contest that's been around for over three decades, it tends to like show that these guys have like risen a little bit to the, to the top. So you're, you got a better, a better bet in hiring these guys to do it. So we, a lot of guys get their, get their first jobs because of being promoted in, by the contest. It's a great thing you're doing. It's, it's a little bit of yeah. a catch 22 in this industry that people often ask, like, how do you get book cover jobs? And the easiest way to get a book cover job is to have book covers on the shelf already. <laughs> like, so yeah. it's, how do you get your first one? That's the hardest. But once it's out there, every other publisher sees it. Book like art directors look at the books on the shelf and that's your best form of advertising is really the fact that you're already doing this. And then they see a book that's successful and it's like, well, I want my book to be successful. And it really does snowball and compound into a career. Yeah. And several times the illustrators and the writers, when they come out to 12 winners in the, of each of the contests, a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll team up and they'll do books, you know, it just helps them. Call, yeah. Can you do my cover? I got this book I'm doing or children's books. They need an illustrator for their children's book. They'll work like that. Or they, they got illustration. They need an author to help write stuff for it. It's amazing how many teams have, uh, have been resulted from um, this contest. That's been really good too. That's another great aspect. I hope you never change, by the way, is the in-person workshop stuff. The uh, meeting, yeah. meeting your peers face-to-face and meeting like-minded artists, it's, it's what made art school worth it for me, is going to a place where everybody else was as into this thing as I'm into and like actually being able to exchange ideas with them and, and everything and not just send texts and not just, even though there's so much information to be gleaned online, you know, from interviews like this included, it doesn't compare to actually face-to-face interaction with somebody. Yeah. Are you familiar with, with Sean Tan? Have you heard of him? Oh, very familiar. Yeah. He was a winner several years ago. He's one of our judges now, but he also won an Oscar a few years ago for best short film. 
But when he won the contest back in volume, I don't know, 18 or 15 or something like that, when he came out to, to um, the awards event, which that time was held at the, um, in New York at the UN, he never met other illustrators. He was out there in, in uh, Australia and he thought he was by himself. He, was, he thought he was in the odd man out, the odd artist out because he loved his science fiction. And when he came out and found all these other people, he's like, there's other people like me. Yeah. He was so excited because <laughs> this was before the internet had really taken off. So he was just amazed how many other people like him there were. And that's what you really find here with the judges and the winners. You got all these like-minded souls that are just totally willing to help each other and treat everybody like brethren. Yeah. Yeah. And I, in illustrators in particular, we're, most of us work from home and we have no coworkers. And I think creativity feeds on inspiration. And when you're just stewing in your own studio, recycling the same ideas, that's difficult. And getting into an environment where, where you're with another artist, it, it bolsters growth. It's like, it gets you excited to paint again. I did yeah. a, I was doing a concept art push and there were a couple other artists there, uh, Ian McCaig and Carla Ortiz, who are brilliant, brilliant artists that I love. And uh, we were working on this project together. And I swear just three days with this group of artists, I probably learned more in three days than I've learned in the past 10 years, just being on my own. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just people exchanging like, oh, you don't have this Photoshop brush, you should take this. And what, you're not using this scanner, you should be doing this. And like, it was so good. It was like, oh, it's like being in art school all over again. <laughs> so um, I'm just curious what, you know, if you have any pr particular favorite forms of art, because you, you know, like I said at the beginning, you were, when I announced you that you were the gold and silver medals from Spectrum, the best in contemporary fantastic art. That seems that that has a certain like style of art that makes into into spectrum, but in writers of the future, you'll see all types of art forms that are in there because we've got winners from Iran, from Turkey, from Vietnam, from Korea, from Portugal, you know, from all over, and all have different styles of art. Do you see any volume in having it with the illustrators of future contests to have all these things celebrated? Yeah, I think that's great. And I think Spectrum is actually pretty versatile as far as style goes. It's the genre is it's all fantasy. And I right. and I think if you see something that feels like it's creating like, okay, these all kind of look like the same style, that's kind of indicative of the market because it's what they're producing. And it's this weird perpetuation, like this thing sells, so let's keep doing that. And then you yeah. keep doing that till it doesn't sell, and then you need something innovative again. <laughs> But it is nice to have like a venue where there's all sorts of like serious stories and not serious stories. Uh, as for me, I, I think fantasy is near and dear to me. I love fantasy. Uh, and it doesn't matter what style comes out of that. I think like my personal taste in art is, is a lot more graphic than what I do. Uh, you mentioned Leo and Diane Dillon. They are like, yeah. they rank amongst some of my favorite artists of all time and not nearly as realistic as the kinds of things I paint. Uh, and so I, I kind of always, whenever I do a job, I'm always like, how can I implement some of that aesthetic? How can I make this more graphic and more graphic, which, you know, you get pushback on sometimes, but I don't know if there's any one particular genre. I think maybe the, the private commissions are cool because they do let me do almost anything and I don't have to mm -hmm. worry about is this going to sell? I just have to worry about making somebody happy and myself happy. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was into, you mentioned Diane there. 
I did a podcast interview on her um, a little bit ago, and uh, just amazing her story of how she and, and Leo, you know, they're about ready to sell out and, and do their nine to five. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. Yeah. And they, they made that plunge and said, that's it. And it was, it was hard for a little bit, but then they just kept on doing it. And they, how they got into the team painting and how they do this stuff. And Diane said, sometimes she'd do something and then, his, her, then Leo would be up at night doing his painting and then he'd change something. They had to work that out. That was a part of the problem <laughs> that they had, and, you know, changing each other. So they had to work out agreements. But um, it, it was an amazing story. Amazing story. I think they're also really... You know, now especially, um, everything is changing so rapidly because we're living in this global society that inclusivity is really important. And when I think back to it, I think Leo and Diane Dillon are some of the earliest examples of being really inclusive in fantasy art, that they're painting like Native Americans and they're painting Black people and they're painting like all these different races in their work at a time that it was a little less common. And and now it's it's almost a selling point. Everybody like insists on it uh, because they want to be progressive and stuff. But I, I give Leo and Diane Dillon a lot of credit for that in this industry. Yeah. Yeah. And she's such a sweet, such a sweet lady. You know, even now, like I said, I talk to her every, every couple of months, I'll call her, say, how are you doing? And she's just, she's great. She still judges the contest. I was going to say there's, I, we hang a lot of art in our house, all of it, original art. There's only two people's work in my house that I hang posters of, uh, and that's Mobius and the Dillons. <laughs> the Dillons hang above my bed, actually. <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah, Mobius was a judge also for, for a while, too. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Man, yeah. You guys have quite the roster. <laughs> yeah. We got this really cool guy now, too. His name's Dan Dos Santos. <laughs> yeah, it's not like those other ones, though. <laughs> well, I beg to differ. But anyway... Um, at what point were you able to quit your day job or did you ever have a day job? Never got a day job. Uh, I think it was the key to my success is if you want to be an artist to not get a day job, don't, it's so hard to give up that steady paycheck. You know, like if you start my rule, when I graduated college, I had six months before my student loans kicked in, uh, was whatever I can make selling my art. Like if I only made $300 a month selling art, then I only had $300 a month <laughs> to spend. And, and when I made more with my art, then I could rent an apartment, I could rent a studio, I could buy a house, but I never lived outside of my means of more than I could make with my art. That was it. And I think a lot of people get in this, they get day jobs and then that pays pretty well. So then before you know it, you have all these expenses that a burgeoning art career cannot cover. So you can never leave that job and you can't actually take book cover work because you don't have the time to take off of your day job to, in order to really do a full career anyways. So it becomes really tricky. People who, who make that transition, that's really difficult. Kudos to those people. Um, but I, I've always thought it's a lot easier to just be poor when you're young and dumb and don't care than <laughs> <laughs> just hustle real hard. And, and the more you make it art, then you, you've entitled, you're entitled to spend more. <laughs> wow. That's good. I mean, sometimes we have, um, we've had some winners that are like in their 60s. And for them, they've already had a career and now they've, they've always wanted to be an artist. They said, hey, that, I, I want to do it. And so they, they enter the contest, enter the contest, enter the contest, and they win. And it's it's not like Grandma Moses necessarily, but it's that type of a thing. They're, you know, 
they're looking for another career and they just, they enter the contest and they win and they start doing their art then. I actually have a lot of students that are of a retirement age and it's, you realize like, yeah, they don't need to work anymore. And it's this thing they've wanted to do for so long that they've loved and put on the back burner to, to live life and pay bills that now they can finally enjoy for the true sake of just enjoyment, which is really awesome. Yeah. But it's interesting. That's, you know, so they both, they both count, they both qualify for entering the contest and it's art is art. And it's the importance of art. Even when, when things get really gnarly in society, all the more importance that artists are able to um, do their thing and, and put a little bit of that creativity that seems to get locked away when people are shuttered for a year, year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. And, and it's funny how much those things really do, they take a toll on everything. Um, yeah. I know a lot of artists... I mean, we all work from home anyway, so the actual quarantine didn't matter. But somehow, just like, it really, I know a lot of hard artists that struggled this year, just mentally, being locked yeah. up and not getting a chance to go out. And like, I get to see my friends about four times a year when I do conventions. I get, to, and they are truly my best friends in the world. And they live in Australia or something. And I get to see them so rarely that to go a whole year without it, it was like, I realized I was getting depressed. It was like, I'm missing, I, I'm missing yeah. my friends. I counted on that time with them. Yeah. yeah. I'm so looking forward to DragonCon. Are you going to be at DragonCon this year? I, I, it's the only one I'm doing this year. Yes, I will be there. Yeah. So we're all excited about that. And uh, <clears throat> we're already in touch with a lot of the judges and a lot of, because we do our annual dinner. We've got a writer and illustrator dinner that we do there at Miss Pity Pat's, oh, and, awesome. which is an amazing restaurant. Cool. And uh, so it, it's great. And even DragonCon puts it our dinner into the schedule so it doesn't conflict with other things that these judges have. So they can all attend the writers and illustrators at the future dinner oh, at DragonCon for yeah, Miss Pity Pats. Yeah. And, you know, and it's and I'm not doing DragonCon. DragonCon is the most lucrative convention for me, but it's by no means the reason I'm doing it. It's like, oh, I get to go. I know Joni will be there. My Patty Briggs will be there. It's this. It's a family reunion. <laughs> yeah, nice. absolutely. That's like definitely half of it. Yeah. So now you mentioned earlier that you went to college, art college. Mm -hmm. So what's the value in getting educated in art, whether an art school or online courses? Cause it's now it's a bit different now with a lot of online courses. It's so different. What, what will that do for someone to actually have a base in what you get from an, from an art school? Well, I don't know that I would recommend art school nowadays. Um, I, I can't think of a really good art school, a four-year program that's affordable. And and I, I don't want to, I know, I know it's expensive to run like SVA, my alma mater. I mean, owning a building in Manhattan is so cost prohibitive that of course the tuition needs to be high. Are you going to get, you know, it's, it would be like, it's probably $150,000 to get a four-year degree there now. And I don't know that that's worth it. If I were to redo it now, um, I would probably do extended workshops or mentorships mixed with online learning. Uh, so something that still gives you face-to-face -face interaction. Say like, I think I always try to think, of, I, I always debate writing an article on that blog I mentioned about like how to get an art education for like $5,000 a year. Um, but I would do programs like there's one called Smart School, which is like an intensive 14-week online mentorship or something like schoolism, and you're just learning that online, and then treat yourself to like 
four workshops a year where you fly to California and you, for $500, get to study with the exact artist you want to study with and meet all the other people that wanted to study with this artist and then take that information back home with you. And you've still grown your community. You've still gotten face-to-face interaction, which if you want to be a traditional painter, learning to paint online is really hard (laughs) because it's so tactile and physical. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that would probably give you a comparable education, if not better than what I received, you know, just doing workshops and mentorships. Good. Okay. Because I think that's important that people want to know about that because now does knowing like the history of art, does that like do anything for you? Like I know people in music is it definitely gives you like the history of music, how it's evolved and to be able to incorporate stuff. I know Chick Corea is just, he was a virtuous pianist in almost every style of music and then he created his own, but he could then incorporate everything. Does that make a difference for you as well? Knowing past? It does for me. Um, I was, I was really, when I went to SBA, truly, it was remarkable. Our graduating class was full of tons of professional artists now, like James Jean was there and Tomer Hanuka and Nicholas Uribe were all in my painting class. Uh, and so feeding off each other was brilliant. But one of the other great benefits was we had a man named Terry Brown teach a history of illustration class. Uh, and Terry was the director of the Society of Illustrators. And you realize that so many artists, like, the idea of art history spans, you know, from Venus of Willendorf, which is like, what, 10,000 BC or something, to mm-hmm. like Da Vinci, and then somehow stops. And nobody seems to learn about Bernie Fuchs, who was just working 20 years before you. And it's like, these are the people whose actual footsteps you're following in. And so many young artists don't know anything that happened in the 50s or 60s or 70s of art or, or in illustration. And so this class really opened my eyes to a lot of that. Uh, And you start to see the way trends are happening. And and it gives you a better scope of where you sit in this big, bigger thing. Uh, So it did make sense that I would do that. It makes sense. But yet they don't. Like you can get an illustration degree and never take a history of illustration course. That's absurd to me. but it's quite common. (laughs) I was also really fortunate that my mentor was, was very into illustration. And and so when I first learned to paint, um, I'm actually pretty versatile in my styles. Like I can work pretty graphically and I can work in a lot of media because he showed me so many of those older techniques. And I never really learned digital until I was well out of school and stuff like that. Uh, but I think it was it was really important for my growth to to know those other styles and stuff. Yeah. Wow. So now you've obviously gone through your curve and you've achieved, you know, the level of success that you've got and continue to uh, to grow. But what are some of the common pitfalls an artist can expect to run into? And what advice do you have to help them avoid? Oof. Ooh, there's so many, I guess. You know, this is probably going to be me projecting a lot. Um, I think probably the the toughest pitfalls are early on, just getting a career going. I think people immediately have this impression that you have to please everybody. Like my portfolio needs to have a little bit of figure work and a little bit of landscape and a little bit of pets and animals and dragons and realism and abstract and and everything because you're trying to attract anybody. Uh, when you do that, you're letting everybody else choose your career for you. 
And people don't hire you because you can do everything. People hire you because you can do something no one else can do. Uh, and I think that's the real secret to making a career is getting really good at something that's uniquely you and getting so good at it that nobody else could copy that even if they tried. And then when somebody wants that thing, you're the person they come to for it. They don't have a million people they can go to. Being a jack of all trades might get you work, but it will not get you a career, I think. Um, early on, do whatever you can. Make, make money, <laughs> surely. But after <laughs> a while, I think you do need to like specialize a little bit more, even if for your own satisfaction. But uh, I think it, it's, you don't want to just be a chameleon your entire career. I think that's maybe one of the biggest earliest right. calls. Uh, and then after that, uh, I don't know. It's been, I, I don't want to jinx myself because um, it's been pretty smooth sailing for me. <laughs> so I haven't well, had I mean, too great. Yeah, yeah, I'm knocking on wood over here and the whole thing on that. So, yeah. but like, have there been any um, issues with contracts that you wish you'd have known beforehand before you got into it and got like, so like maybe twice in my 20 something year career, have I ever like felt like I got cheated on something? Uh, and that was just naivete, you know, on my part that I didn't know to stand up for myself early on. And I kind of let this client walk all over me, which now I, I like, now it'll trigger me. Now, if I see somebody like doing that to one of my students, it's like, I'm going to call this person up and do this right now. Yeah. But uh, it's, I think you know, having respect for yourself and your work is important. Don't have ego about it, but don't let, you're a, you're a skilled craftsman. Like the way somebody would treat a plumber, you know, like it's not too different. It's, it's like, no, like you don't tell the plumber how to fix your pipes. Like he knows he's the expert yet. Somehow somebody hires an artist and then starts second guessing them all the time. And then the artist is like, well, I guess they know. It's like, no, you're, you're the expert. Have a little like, and, and it's, it's not just pride, but it's also, it's about guiding the job along and like being in charge and presenting yourself like the expert and the trained professional in this regard. I think a lot of novices are, are too afraid to maybe stand up for themselves in that way. Right. So that's something just, it'll build. I mean, I'm mad you can say, don't do that, but also experience as a, yeah, that's a certain value. Yeah, you're probably going to learn that the hard way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. So, so basically, that, that's good that you've um, that you had that you've had mostly the silver spoon all along the way, and so I have no intention of of changing that uh, device that you used to to feed your career. No, it's it's you know it's the other nice thing about this job is that people are happy about it. It's, it's again, not to use the plumber analogy, but like if you hire a plumber, it's because something's wrong. Like you've got leaky pipes in your house and something. People who are commissioning artwork are usually excited about this. They have a book they love. They have money they're willing to spend on art because they love the art. So the process really is, it's nice. It's nice almost all the time. And when you hand in that job and your client freaks out because they love it so much, that's like just the icing on top. But it's truly, it's kind of the default in this industry that you're dealing with with good people who who like this thing. That's that's pretty right. rare. Most people's jobs are not like that. <laughs> For sure, that's 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 really good. 
And then I guess last question is like, any advice for how someone can improve their painting skills, just like paint, or is there anything else that they should do to? Mm. Um, drawing is key. I, I had a teacher that told me beneath every good painting is a great drawing. And for a long time, it did, I, I hadn't realized what was holding my painting back was my drawing skills. Um, you know, painting is essentially just coloring. It doesn't matter if it's crayons or whatever. If that drawing underneath is not good, no amount of painting will fix it. Uh, that, and I'd say my other big progress happened through life painting. Uh, the ability to see a model in real life with real light on their skin and all the colors that you can see in real life that you can't see in a photo, that really informed my painting early on. My ability to paint good portraits from life carried over into my illustration work quite a bit. That's great. That's awesome. This has been great having a chance to talk with you. So now if someone wants to be able to find you, where do, what's the best way for them to, to discover Dan Dos Santos? Well, you can always go to my website, uh, which is just dandosantos.com. You can follow me. I'm not, I'm not the best at social media. <laughs> I just, I'm too old for that, baby. But uh, I do, I try to post on Instagram on occasion. That's usually a more behind the scenes peak. And then one of my passion projects is a website called Muddy Colors, where uh, just a whole bunch of friends of mine that are equally passionate about education kind of all got together and decided to offer a free resource for young, young would-be artists that every single day we post a free article that's just a glimpse of what it means to be a professional illustrator. doesn't matter if it's about how, how to do your taxes or how this job happened or the like personal dealings you're dealing with. And we've been doing that every single day for 10 years now. And, uh, wow. It's called Muddy Colors? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And wow, so I post maybe twice a month on there, I'll post something of mine. But every single day, there's somebody of like extraordinary caliber sharing something about being an artist on there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, I highly recommend you read the Writers of the Future series. These are, after all, who our judges have selected as the best of the best new writers and artists. They can be found at writersofthefuture.com, at Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, John. This is a real honor.